everyone. I'm glad to be back. Sue and, I've and I have had three weeks holiday. The first week we just lied around in a holiday house and the second two weeks we road tripped to Adelaide and back and we ate too much food. But I've still got the afterglow of holidays so I'm thankful for holidays and uh, Andrew's thankful that I've come back. So <laughs> it's a win-win. Let me pray for us. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that cuts us to the heart. We thank you for this part of your word that reminds us that you are sovereign and in control, that you hear the cry of your people, and even in our frailty and failure, you rescue us. We thank you that the things of Samuel point us to the things of Jesus. And we pray that we might leave here rejoicing in the Son, who is the judge of the living and the dead, that we may find our hope in him. Amen. Uh, I want to start with a spoiler this morning. So I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Uh, if you don't like spoilers, I'd encourage you to put your fingers in your ears and just block and a wave to say you can pull them out now. Uh, the spoiler that I want to give you is the last verse of the passage. We've already heard it read. I'm not sure if you uh, caught the importance of it. Verse 23, and this is a spoiler, so it comes with a spoiler alert. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. Uh, uh, this shouldn't really surprise you as a careful reader of 1 Samuel. Uh, we've already been told by God himself in chapter 9 that he's heard the cry of his, of his people under the oppression of the Philistines. And uh, he's already committed himself to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines back in chapter 9, verse 16. And I think it's worth holding on to because by the end of chapter 13, uh, there are two questions before us answering uh, how will God save his people? And uh, the two questions that we were raised in last week's passage was the question around Samuel and Saul. Samuel had rebuked Saul and begun the process of having him rejected as king. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And so it raises the question for us, if Saul has been rejected, how will God save his people? And the second question was raised by the end of chapter 13. It's a practical question. Israel did not have enough weapons to fight the Philistines in open warfare. Israel was skilled in the bow and the sling, but they weren't prepared for a fight on the flat. Uh, as an aside, the historians see the emergence of the Bronze Era where uh, the, uh, the kings of the day used weapons made of bronze. And it raised the question again, if there's not enough weapons for Israel to fight the Philistines, how will God save his people? And so the spoiler helps us 
with that kind of answer. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. Now we could stop there and all go to morning tea. But if you're curious like me, you want to say, how? How does God save? How does God save in this particular scene that we might praise him as the God who hears our cries and rescues? And as we work our way through this passage, chapter 14, verse 1 to verse 23, we'll notice that it flips between two scenes. Saul is camped at Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. And Jonathan is storming the mountain pass of Michmash. And uh, we see that uh, the story starts in verse 1 to show us that God saves through the king's son, Jonathan. Verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. And then we read these words, but he did not tell his father. Uh, as a father of sons, I can imagine this scenario, especially when my sons were a sort of year 11 and 12 and had adventures that I wasn't so sure about. They went off for an adventure, but he did not tell his father. Now, we've met uh, Jonathan in the last chapter, and we're going to learn more about him uh, in chapters to come. But here's a couple of things worth knowing about Jonathan, son of Saul, that we meet in verse 1. His name means God-given. And uh, as Hebrews are interested uh, in the meanings of names and the importance of names, it raises the question, is he the one who will deliver uh, Israel? from the Philistines. Second thing worth noting about Jonathan is because he is the king's son, he has a sword and he has assigned to him an armour bearer who helped him in battle. And the third thing worth noting, noting about Jonathan is that by chapter 14, he has a reputation of being a good fighter. So verse 1 starts with Jonathan seeking an adventure amongst the Philistines uh, and he does not tell his dad about what's going to happen. At this point in your Bibles, I wish it said, meanwhile, back at the ranch, to get a sense of the movement from Jonathan where he is and Saul where he is. And in verse 2, we see where Saul is, don't we? Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were 600 fighting men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. That tells us he was a priest because that's a priestly garment. The ephod, the priests wore on them. In the pockets of the ephod were the Thummim and the Urim, the instruments by which Israel formally consulted God's will. Uh, so there was a priest of the formal religious process with him, 600 fighting men. And I want you to notice that the details uh, that are mentioned here in verses 2 and 3 cause us to be concerned. They're a warning for us. First, here is Saul, 
who in the last chapter, his kingship had been rejected by Samuel. And we'll see that full rejection play out in the next couple of chapters. And here is Ahijah, who comes from the priestly line of Eli, the priestly line that was rejected by Samuel because they were wicked sons. All that doesn't bode well for the group that uh, uh, Saul had gathered around him under the pomegranate tree, 600 fighting men and the priests wearing the ephod. And so the dramatic tension is set up and we're told no one was aware that Jonathan had left. In verse five and six, the scene flips again to show us that nothing can hinder God. And the scene flips back to Jonathan and his armor bearer who are approaching a pass in the higher country where the Philistines had set up an outpost on the other side. And we can see it described in verse four, each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other towards, uh, to the south towards Geba. If you're a maps and geography kind of person, I encourage you to Google it, have a look, see we're up in the high country. There is a pass that leads to a Philistine outpost on the other side. They're in the high country so they can spy down on Israel and work out what's gonna happen next. It's at this point that Jonathan has what you and I would call a crazy idea. And he says to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Now it's verse six that shows us uh, a fresh look at God's sovereignty through the eyes of Jonathan. And it shows us that Jonathan is a man of faithful heart. He says, let's go to the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. Here is another angle on God's sovereignty that's good for our hearts as well as Jonathan's heart. He trusted that the Lord was the one who saved. And he understood that battles weren't won or lost on the number of fighting men that you had in your company. Whether it was a few or whether it was many, it's the Lord who brings the victory. We can learn something from Jonathan here about living under the sovereignty of God. We hear his confidence in the person of God. It's the Lord who saves. And we hear his humility. It's not because he demands victory, but it's uh, because the Lord is able to give victory. And in verse seven, we get the affirmation of the armor brother armor bearer do all that you have in mind go ahead I am with you in heart and soul 
Everyone needs their faithful armour bearer in life. I feel like that's Josh and mine's job with Andrew. When he comes up with crazy ideas, we respond, go ahead, I am with you in heart and soul. <laughs> I'm not really sure if that's good application from this passage. What Jonathan shows us is how to respond to the Lord who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in his humility, he tests the Lord's will. Uh, you might say that Jonathan tested God's will to put his plan against God's plans. And so Jonathan came up with this plan. If we show ourselves to the Philistines and they say, you wait there, will come over to you, then we know not to stay. We know that this is not a good plan affirmed by the Lord. But in verse 10, if we show ourselves to the Philistines and they say to us, come up, we'll climb up because we know that that is our sign that the Lord has given us into our hands. Now, we've noticed a great difference in this part of the Bible about how men and women sought the will of God by consulting the priest as he cast lots for the will of God. And Jonathan is reflecting that process. It's a humble process. He's not saying, give me the victory. He's saying, let me test my plan against your plan, Lord. And so they decide to move ahead. In verse 11, uh, the two of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they are hiding in. Now, in this part of God's word, we see that military insults are all part of the psychological warfare. Uh, the Philistines shout abuse to undermine the confidence that Israel had. And here's some of the abuse. The Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they're hiding in. One of my favourite military abuses is in a couple of chapters' time when Goliath looks at David in front of him and yells out to the crowd, am I a dog that they come at me with sticks? The men of the uh, Philistine outpost shouted, come up to see us, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Now, that's the confirmation that uh, Jonathan was looking for and uh, that his plan was in line with the Lord's plans and the Lord would give him victory. And in verse 13 and 14, we see Jonathan's part of the victory. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet, his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. His armour bearer followed and killed them behind. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Now, we've already seen that Jonathan's confidence is not in his military prowess. His confidence is in the Lord who wins battles. And the real confirmation of that comes in verse 15. Then the panic struck the whole army. Those in camp and field, those in outposts and raiding parties, the ground shook 
It was a panic sent by God. As the spoiler told us, it's God who gives the victory in this place. The panic struck the whole army and the Philistine contingent in this particular outpost were running amok. Now, at this point, I think it's uh, worth uh, letting me say something about violence in the Old Testament. People talk about the defeater beliefs that make it difficult for people to be followers of Christian and violence in the Old Testament is one of those beliefs. And we have one of these situations here. What the uh, unfolding story has shown us is that the Philistines were enemies of the Lord, the creator of the heaven and the earth. The Philistines worshiped Dagon, the fish god. They practiced child sacrifices. The Philistines were opposed to Yahweh and the God of Israel. And in the broader context, God hears the cry of his people and he brings justice through victory. And this particular act of judgment is really a foreshadowing of the greater judgment that is coming when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. So there is a theological judgment going on here. It's not a racial one of genocide. God is good. And God is just. And God's justice is ultimately seen at the cross. And God's judgment is ultimately heard at the second coming of the Son. And so verse 15 is another act of the just judgment of the good God that Jonathan believed in. The panic struck the whole army and send them into a, an, a frenzy. And it reminds us here, the Lord fights his own battles. At this point, I want our Bibles to say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and the, the screenshot goes back to Saul. Saul's uh, lookouts had noticed a battle is going on up in the high place where the Philistines had the outpost and that the Philistines were melting away. Saul asked the obvious question, who's fighting that battle? They took a roll and they discovered the only person that was missing was Jonathan and his armour bearer. And it raised the question for Saul, who's fighting that battle? which is the question we already have the answer to. Saul called the priest, bring the ark of God, which was still in the possession of the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the, to the priest, though, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. They were routed before their eyes and they hadn't even entered the battle. So Paul says... Uh, Saul, I'm getting Saul and Paul mixed up. Sorry about that. Saul said to the priest, don't worry about it. Specifically, withdraw your hand. Now, the Lord is giving Saul a message at this point, and it's worth thinking about. 
The Lord doesn't need the king to win his battles. And the Lord doesn't need the priest to bring about the victory. And the Lord doesn't need the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with these people, two great institutions of Israelite life. But in verse 20, Saul assembles his men and goes into the battle after the Lord had already won it. And they found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. And it emerges that the Lord has brought a great victory here, not with the king, not with the Ark of the Covenant, but in his own strength and power. And we're surprised to read that two groups of people are liberated in this moment. In verse 21, the collaborators of Israel, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and joined their camp, came back over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And in verse 22, those who had been hiding in the high country out of fear of the Philistines, again joined Israel and joined in the battle. Here was a victory where people were liberated to join the Lord's people afresh, which brings us back to our spoiler in verse 23. On that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avon. Now, before we finish, there's another kind of question we have to ask ourselves as Christians reading this part of the Bible. We need to ask ourselves, how does this victory point us to Jesus? God saved then through the king's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, by his example, shows us what trusting the king of kings looks like. And Jonathan has shown us that the victory comes from the Lord because nothing can thwart his plans. And Jonathan has shown us that liberation uh, uh, is brought by the Lord for those who are caught up, collaborators or hiding. And Jonathan points us to the greater victory that Jesus himself, great David's greater son would bring. And so Jonathan points us to Jesus in that kind of way. Now I could take you to the cross and show you there the victory that Jesus won for us over sin, death and judgment. Or I could take you to the end of the Bible and the great promise of Revelation 19 where our second uh, reading took us. And in the vivid language of Revelation, it reminds us that God brings his victory through his victorious son, the son of the good God, Jesus the just. And uh, he gives a vision to John for us. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. 
With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven follow him, riding on the white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You'll notice it's not a sword made of bronze in his hand. It's the powerful word of God by which Jesus will judge the nations. He spreads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The small victory that God brings through Jonathan points us to the greater victory that Jesus will bring for us, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus the just, who judges the living and the dead. Bible ends with an invitation. Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. Jesus, who testifies, says these things. Yes, I am coming soon. To which we respond. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that this portion of Samuel reminds us that you... Uh, bring the victorious battles that you invite us to trust in you and your son. And we pray that our eyes might be opened afresh, that Jesus, the risen Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords, the just judge who is good and worthy to be praised. Amen.